Well, again, thanks for joining us on this uh, virtual live stream. By way of introduction, I just want to obviously note a, a few things. First, we are in the midst of challenging times as a country and the world, and the coronavirus, COVID-19, is changing our lives, at least for the, at least for the time being. But as we've tried to say again and again, and as pastors have started to use this term again, it's a strange providence. God's on his throne. He knows what he's doing. But, but as we think about it, uh, I was reminded of a book that I read several years ago called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. And Rodney Stark is a sociologist, and he's also a historian. And he wrote a book, he wrote that book, to help people understand how Christianity became so significant so quickly. I mean, think about it. Uh, by the end of the New Testament, it's just a couple thousand people. And then by 313, Constantine makes it an official Roman religion. Millions of people become Christians in the matter of a really relatively short period of time. And this is what he says in his book. He makes one clear point about how this happened. It happened because it was the testimony of Christians caring for each other and caring for the world around them. That's how Christianity became a worldwide religion through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. But from a sociological perspective, an historical perspective, it was because Christians cared for each other and they cared for the world around them. And, and of course, we see this in the book of Acts and the early testimony of the church. Acts 4.34, Luke writes, there was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the feet of the apostles, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was later called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. I think the point is that this is our chance to care for one another and to care for the world around us. Follow the government guidelines, surely, but this is our chance, our opportunity to love our neighbor as ourself, and it's a chance for us to show the world the love of Jesus. Uh, many of you know, just by way of example, uh, Vanessa and I and the kids moved last year, and uh, we'd lived in the same house for about eight or nine years, and we'd become close, dear friends with the neighbors to the north of us, and they're an older couple. And so we just thought on Friday or Saturday of this week, we should email them and just see if there's anything they need. And normally when you send out that kind of text or that kind of email, people say, we're fine. Thanks for asking. But they, they asked us to go over to the store for them. They said, we're, 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 we're shocked that we're in the position that we're the people that are supposed to stay home. So thank you for asking, 
And yes, we need it. Who are the neighbors around you that you could do that for? Where is the opportunity to care for the people in your neighborhood, in your community? Tangible ways to love people right now. Okay, so that's the first thing. Our text. God has brought us here today in his providence. This text was planned to be preached on months and months ago, and yet here we are. Jesus is in the garden. Maybe the sermons are going to be a bit different for a bit here, maybe more devotional in nature. I'm probably going to jump off more towards application a bit. They may be a bit shorter just because of the the media venue. One of the names for Jesus Christ that gets me every time is the man of sorrows. That's what Isaiah 53, 3 calls him. There's a song that we sing by Hillsong that says, man of sorrows, what a name. Actually, that might be the Sovereign Grace one. There's, there's two we sing. But every time I read the phrase, sing the phrase, say the phrase, remember the phrase, man of sorrows, it, it wells me up with emotion. Jesus' life was, was marked with perpetual sorrow. It was the height of his ministry, and in Luke's gospel, Jesus says in Luke 12, 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What Jesus is seeing in this text before him, before us, and what he's seeing in the, the future that lies before him is a, a deep flood under which he's going to be submerged. And the thought of passing beneath the waters of this flood, the thought of passing through the waters of this kind of affliction distresses his soul. And this term, of course, distresses, imports ideas of oppression, affliction. It bears witness to the burden of his anticipated anguish. And Jesus bore that throughout his entire life. He knew what he was born to do. Jesus knew that he was born to be a man of sorrows. He knew the day of the distressing of his soul was coming. And now he's in that moment. It's the middle of the night. He's in the garden. And the prospect of his suffering was ever before him. So first, I just want to look at for a moment the sorrows of Jesus, as we've been already already saying Verse 37, he began to be exceedingly sorrowful. He began to be sorrowful, troubled, grieved. Maybe your text says in the NIV or other versions. Rarely in the Gospels are we given such an insight into the humanity of Jesus. One of my favorite commentaries or books on the Christology of Jesus or the life of Jesus is one by B.B. Warfield. And B.B. Warfield was a, was, a, was a theologian in the early part of the 20th century. And there's a, there's, a, there's a chapter in his book on Jesus, and it's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Because we don't always think about it. We don't always think about the emotional life of Jesus, that he really was a man. 
He was a man who experienced deep grief. He was sorrowful. He was exceedingly sorrowful, verse 37. This is to express to us deep words of emotions. And it's interesting to me that, the, that Matthew here in, in this event, he says that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And that the reason for this, as he goes on to explain to Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, is that my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Why is that interesting? He's not saying here that death itself is troubling him. It's not a description of the cause of his trouble, but the extent of his trouble. He's troubled to the point of death and not because of death. Jesus is about to be exposed to the one thing that really causes him to be afraid. He's about to be exposed to the one thing that really causes him to be afraid. And it's the experience of being separated from his father by experiencing his eternal wrath. Jesus is about to go to the cross of Calvary where the unmitigated and unadulterated wrath of God will come upon him. And he's going to be nailed to the cross so that he can be our redeemer. The second and last and final and true and better Adam is going to be in the place of those who he's come to save. And he's going to endure the unmitigated wrath of God, as sorrowful as he is. I'm sorrowful even to the point of death. I'm exceedingly sorrowful, verse 37, and he's going to do it for our sake. He's going to do it to bring us back to the Father. That's the first thing I want to show us. I want to show us that Jesus Christ was facing the judgment of God. He's going to say in Mark's gospel, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Is it possible to remove this cup from me? Is it possible to remove this cup from me? And of course, we know that the answer from heaven in this question was silence. So let's push it in. Some of us feel that. Some of us feel silence right now. Some of us feel silence. But isn't it encouragement to us? Isn't it refreshment for our souls to know that even the Savior received silence from heaven? And the Savior received silence from heaven in a way that you and I never will. Because when we come and we say, remove this cup, remove the impending wrath, the Father will smile on us with the smile of Jesus. He will smile on us so that what you and I will receive will always just be the cup of blessing because Jesus took the cup of wrath. Two verses, Psalm 16, Psalm 116. 
Return, O my soul, to your rest. Your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. That's the cup you have. How about that famous place in Psalm 23? You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the cup of gladness. When we cry out to heaven for the removal of the judgment of God, you and I will get the cup of salvation, we will get the cup of gladness forever. And that is a great gift to us. And the second thing I want to show us is much briefer than the first. But this was an encouragement to me this week. Is to just see the resolve of Jesus. To see the resolve of Jesus. Verse 46. Did you see that? It's in the, what he's saying to his disciples, and interestingly, it's in all the narratives. It's in all the Gospels. Rise. Let us be going. For my betrayer is at hand. That's resolve. In, every, in, in light of everything we just said, in Jesus about to suffer the wrath of God for our sake so that you and I will always receive the cup of gladness, the cup of blessing, the gospel writers universally tell us how this all started to go down. It was his resolution. Remember, we'll read other places that I lay my life down on my own accord. No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. I don't have resolve. I've got a little. You might have a little. But Jesus has resolve. Jesus is absolutely 100, 1,000% committed to accomplishing the salvation of your souls. And that will never be taken from you. That will never be taken from you. He is 100% resolved and committed to you. It's interesting. This same verb occurs in John 14. And commentators of the Gospel of John have often wondered why he said it so early. Rise, let us go, when there's still three more chapters to go of discourse in the high priestly discourse we know in John 14 through 17. And I think the reason is that Jesus has made it known to his disciples that his resolve to go to the cross is above all else. His resolve to suffer for our sake to experience the unmitigated, unadulterated wrath of a holy and righteous God is what his purpose is. And we live in a world today that lacks resolve. But Jesus was resolved. 
He did it till the bitter end. Which means, to press it into you this morning, you can trust him. You can trust him. If he took it to the bitter end, and he made it his mission, in John 14, the first thing, one of the first things he says, before he's going to say everything else, then you can trust him all the way to the end. And I hope and pray that that helps you today, for the rest of today, for this week, to look to him as the man of sorrows who was resolved to the end. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your good and holy word. And we thank you for what a wonderful Savior, Redeemer, and friend we have, who would be so committed when we oftentimes are so fickle. And thank you for your unrelenting resolve for our sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.